You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today I want to look at three recent decisions of the Irish Labour Court under the Industrial Relations Amendment Act 2015. You may recall this legislation was introduced to protect employees who are members of a trade union, but where the employer refuses to recognise the trade union. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last recording. The main development has been the final publication of the general scheme around the proposed gender pay gap information legislation. To be frank, the new scheme as published doesn't really tell us anything we didn't already know in that it simply confirms the legislation once it is signed into law will apply to employers that have 250 employees or more and ultimately working its way down to a threshold of 50 employees or more. And likewise, it sets out that employers will be required to provide gender pay gap differential information by reference to hourly rates, bonus pay, part-time rates, etc. The general scheme doesn't even give any detail around the nuts and bolts as to how this legislation will work, and it doesn't give any indication as yet as to the level of fines or penalties for employers that breach it. At this point in the calendar, it's highly unlikely that we're going to see it any time this side of next October or November. For those of you who are interested in this topic, we have a short article on the general scheme on our website, and I'll include a link to it on the mail with this podcast. We will also be publishing other articles in the coming weeks and months on the experience from other jurisdictions as employers start to get ready for this legislation. The second development I want to talk about is the Parental Leave Amendment Bill 2018. This is a proposal, in short, to increase the level of parental leave from 18 weeks to 26 weeks. It also proposes to increase the age and respect of kids that parents can take parental leave from 8 to 12. Combined, these two changes may mean that more employees will be looking to take parental leave. However, overall, as parental leave is still unpaid, it's probably not going to mean a huge number of employees are looking to take this leave. And then finally, for those of you following the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Bill, which is the legislation that will outlaw the use of zero-hour contracts in Irish law, the legislation is very close to being finalised. All expectations were that it would be finalised before the end of the summer, but at this point in the calendar, it seems unlikely. However, as can often happen, various pieces of draft legislation will be signed in in the last week before the summer recess, and it could be included in that. As with all of these developments, we will keep you updated on any changes that occur. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let me turn now to the main topic for today's review, and that's three new decisions under the Industrial Relations Amendment Act 2015. As I mentioned at the outset, this was legislation introduced to protect employees who are members of a trade union where their employer refuses to engage with the trade union. And to give a little bit of background or context to this, under Irish law, employees are perfectly entitled to join a trade union. However, there is no corresponding obligation on the employer to recognise that trade union. So in practice, trade union membership has real limitations. As a consequence, over the years, the trade union movement have repeatedly been seeking mandatory legislation around this to require employers to deal with them, the same as you would have in most other European countries. And in fact, Ireland is one of the few remaining countries in the Western world where employers can still refuse to recognise a trade union. Successive Irish governments, however, have refused to give in on this point, 
because it is seen as one of the more attractive features of Irish employment law when it comes to attracting in foreign employers, particularly when compared to other European jurisdictions. As a compromise, however, back in 2001, legislation was introduced that would give employees in such situations the opportunity to go to the Labour Court and if they could show that the employer refused to recognise with them and that the employees were receiving lesser terms and conditions than comparable employees, well then the Labour Court could, on the employer's behalf, provide for improvements in the terms and conditions such as pay rates, etc. And the logic or design behind this legislation was that any employer faced with the choice between negotiating with a union in a process that it can control or having the Labour Court step in on its behalf and order pay improvements, that the employer would always choose the lesser of the two evils and deal with the union rather than let the Labour Court do it. In practice, I'm not sure if that many non-union employers actually recognised the union as a result of the legislation, and the legislation never really lived up to its billing. Following quite a few rounds with Ryanair back in the mid-2000s, which ultimately resulted in a Supreme Court judgement in Ryanair's favour in 2007, the legislation was rendered obsolete and the union side more or less gave up on it. The 2015 Act was eventually introduced to patch up the holes that the Ryanair judgment had left in the legislation and to make it work again for the employee side. At this point, almost three years on, up until recently we had only one full judgment under the legislation. We now have three more decisions, including one full decision, in the last four weeks. So what I want to do today is to look at these three decisions and see what trends we can decipher from them and what they mean for you as employers. The first of these cases is Conduit on the Communication Workers' Union. The employees in this case were members of the Communications Workers' Union and were employees of Conduit, a private sector call centre operator. They worked in particular on the ECAS service, which is the emergency call answering service, in other words, the 999 service. This service is run privately by Conduit, but also, to a large extent, in the public sector in certain other areas, but deals with the same thing, ambulance, fire and police service call answering queries. The conduit employees claim that their terms and conditions provided a lesser benefit than comparable employees doing the same work in the public sector, and union brought a referral under the 2015 Act. There had already been a preliminary hearing in January 2017 as to whether or not the union represented a not insignificant number of employees concerned. This case already involved a preliminary hearing back in January 2017, on the technical question as to whether or not the union represented a not insignificant number in order to proceed. The way this legislation works, as a precondition, the union must firstly show that they represent, and this is the wording in the legislation, a not insignificant number before the case can go any further. And in that case, the Labour Court concluded and accepted that a number of just under one third of the grade group or category of employees concerned was sufficient. As the first decision under this legislation to actually get into the question as to comparators and how the Labour Court deals with this question, the judgment actually gives quite a lot of detail. Firstly, the court explained that the main section under this legislation is Section 5, which in summary provides as follows, that the court may not make an order to improve remuneration and conditions of employment of a grade, group or category of employees unless the court is satisfied that the totality of the remuneration and conditions of employment provide a lesser benefit to the employees concerned when compared against the totality of remuneration and conditions of employment of comparable workers employed in similar employment. And I'm paraphrasing and directly quoting from the legislation here. And in making this assessment, the court will consider, again, the totality of remuneration and conditions of employment of comparable workers in similar employment and the comparability of skills, responsibilities, 
physical and mental effort required to perform the work in which the workers are engaged. To break that down, what the court was saying was, there are three key questions which it must be satisfied on before it can proceed to make a recommendation in regard to improved terms and conditions. Firstly, that the employees in the dispute and the employees with whom they are claiming to be comparators are correct comparators. Secondly, whether or not both groups of employees, i.e. the employees in the dispute and the comparator employees, are in similar employment. And thirdly, if the court is satisfied on the first two questions, whether or not the employees in the dispute genuinely are receiving a lesser benefit, i.e. that their terms and conditions are not as good as the comparators. If the court is satisfied on all three questions, the court may then proceed to make an order or recommendation to improve the employee's terms and conditions. So having set out the test and the three questions, the court then looked to apply this to the particular facts of the Conduit case. The CWU argued that the ECAS employees working for Conduit were performing broadly comparable functions to the public sector employees. Likewise, they followed basically the same series of tasks in dealing with these calls. The union was also able to provide evidence as to the degree of similarity between the job descriptions for the Conduit employees and the public sector comparator employees. And critically, they provided oral testimony and evidence from employees both within Conduit and within the public sector as to what their roles were to highlight the degree of similarity. Conduit, on the other hand, focused very much on the fact that as this is a public sector and private sector comparison, it's simply unrealistic and incorrect to say that they could be employed on this in similar employment and that they were comparable. They pushed the point that private sector employment is clearly very different to public sector employment. Conduit instead pointed to 15 other private sector call centre operators who, it argued, were more appropriate comparators for the purpose of looking at the Conduit employees. The Labour Court explained that in assessing this point, the legislation firstly does not require them to conclude that the Conduit employees and the public sector employees are identical. It simply requires that they be capable of comparison or that a comparison can be drawn. So the standard is perhaps slightly lower than some employers might have argued, but it's a useful bit of clarification for us. Secondly, the court acknowledged that Conduit had identified a number of other comparators and accepted that those other comparators may be more appropriate comparators, but in the court's view, that was almost irrelevant. The only question before the court was whether or not the employees who worked for Conduit and the employees whom they were claiming to be compared against were correct comparators or were capable of comparison. The Labour Court was satisfied, therefore, on the evidence that the union had put forward that the conduit employees were capable of comparison with the public sector equivalent employees doing the same job, and on that basis they were therefore comparators for the purpose of the statutory assessment. The court then turned to its second question as to whether or not the two groups of employees were in similar employment. It explained that in dealing with this question it would consider the line of work of the employees concerned, the nature and size of the undertaking employing them, and the context within which the two groups of employees carried out their business. The CWU argued that both sets of employees basically provided 24-7, 365 days a year public utility. Conduit again focused on the difference between public and private employment, and simply argued that it's wholly unrealistic to suggest that employees in private sector employment are in similar employment to employees in public sector employment, which is a convincing argument, I would have thought. The Labour Court, however, disagreed. It stated that there is nothing in the legislation and nothing in the intention of the legislation to preclude a public to private sector comparison and vice versa. 
if the facts in the particular case support it. And unfortunately for Conduit, the facts in this case did support it because the employees did appear to be performing very much the same duties on the evidence that had been provided. On that basis, the court was satisfied that they both were in similar employment. The court then turned to its third question, which in most cases I think would be the most critical question around the benchmarking. Are the two groups of employees receiving similar benefits or are the conduit employees receiving a lesser level of benefit? Unfortunately, in this case, and perhaps it's always going to be the case where comparing private sector employees with equivalent public sector employees, the conduit employees clearly were receiving a lesser level of benefit. The court concluded, therefore, that as all three questions had been answered positively in the employee's favour, that it did have the authority to go ahead and make a recommendation in regard to the terms and conditions. And it recommended that the employer provide a 13% pay increase to the employees over the following 12 months, bringing their hourly rate up to 12.50 per hour. Significantly, and this was a real win for the employer, however, the Labour Court refused to backdate the order. It expressly stated that the legislation does not give it the authority to backdate or make any such order retrospective. Considering that this case had taken the best part of 20 months to come on for hearing, this was a very significant point. If the Labour Court had ordered the employer to backdate any element of the 13% pay increase back to October 2016 when this case first started, it would have represented a very significant once-off cost for the employer now. What's more, as this was a general observation on the authority of the Labour Court under the legislation, this is a point that can be applied to all cases following the conduit case. The second case I want to look at is Zimmer Orthopaedics and SIP2. This case focused entirely upon a preliminary issue as to whether or not the union represented a not insignificant number of the employees in the grade category or group of employees concerned. SIP2 represented 53 general operatives in Zimmer's Shannon plant. The employer argued, however, that this did not meet the threshold required under the legislation. The employer explained in evidence that it had two plants in Ireland, one in Shannon and one in Oran Moor. All employees in both plants were employed by the same employer entity, the same company. So any analysis as regards a grade, group or category of employees concerned must combine the workforce from both Oran Moor and Shannon and could not focus exclusively on just one site. In addition, Zimmer explained that they actually don't have a grade known as general operative. Instead, it has a broader category of employees that are early paid employees, but that includes a number of different functions, all of which are quite different from one another. Because the union had not identified which of the different functions its 53 members came from, well then the only appropriate analysis was to look at the overall group of early paid employees for the purposes of the assessment. On the numbers, Zimmer explained that that therefore meant that the union only represented 53 out of 410 employees, which on its assessment was less than 20%. Actually, it was 13%. And the Labour Court agreed. It accepted the employer's point that the union had not met the burden of proof to show that it represented a not insignificant number. Now, perhaps it's no surprise that 13% of the group was not going to be enough to meet the threshold, but... Interestingly, in this case, if the assessment had just been limited to Shannon, the employees would have represented 19% of the grade, and it would have been interesting to see how the court dealt with that number. The last of the three cases I want to look at today is Enercon and Connect Trade Union, and that's a case that focused primarily on the assessment around making the comparison between the employees bringing the claim and the employees against whom they claim to be comparators, and in particular, the type of information the Labour Court will require. The employees in this dispute were wind turbine technicians. 
and they claimed that their comparators were similar employees working for GE, Vestas and Siemens, the three main competitors in the wind turbine installation and service industry. The union in its submission presented its members as being all part of the same group, grade or category of employees. The employer in dealing with the comparator point explained that within the installation service there was a number of different functions, all of which were very different from one another. Each of the functions carried different levels of skills, responsibility, experience and accordingly different levels of remuneration. It was not simply a homogenous group that could be compared to another group elsewhere. And on that basis, the employer argued that it was simply impossible for the Labour Court to draw any comparison because it wasn't the same group, greater category of employees. The Labour Court agreed with this point and it commented that given the limited information available on the teams of employees within Enercon and the limited data provided by the union on the skills mix and how the employees actually work, it was actually quite difficult to carry out any degree of assessment as to their comparability with other employees in other employer organisations. And I want to read a quote from the judgment on this because while it's quite long, it actually helps to explain the way the Labour Court will look at this and the type of information it requires. What the court said was as follows. In order for the court to find two sets of employees are comparable, the court must conclude that they are capable of being compared. It must have information to suggest that a comparison is possible having regard to the statute. In essence, the court must be provided with a clear view of the shape and nature of the jobs which it is asked to regard as comparable as between one and the other. It is clear to the court that the combination of the work output of the workers concerned in this trade dispute results in the erection of wind turbines and their subsequent servicing. What is not clear, and especially so in the case of the comparator companies, is the actual jobs that people do, the work they actually carry out, and how they are structured in terms of delivery of work output. However, The court concludes it does not possess sufficient information or evidence which clearly sets out the detail of matters which would, when taken together and in combination with other information, allow a conclusion as regards comparability. Those matters would include, but would not be limited to, matters such as work structure, grading structure, duties, qualification requirements and responsibilities of the workers in the respondent company and the comparator company. In the court's view, in the absence of clear, relevant detail and information, it could not find that they were comparable with the employees in General Electric and the other comparator companies. Now, to be clear, the court wasn't saying that they weren't comparators. It was simply saying it didn't even have enough information to be able to undertake that assessment as to whether or not they were. And on that basis, the employer was able to have the employee's case struck out. What's interesting about this case is that it wasn't heard in one day. There was a number of different hearings and it's clear from the judgment that the Labour Court was at length to try and help the union to provide the information required. However, the union simply failed to do it. Now, that may be a practical difficulty and limitation within this legislation, that unions may not have access to the level of information in comparator companies, in particular if the employees in the other companies are not members of a union. On the other side, employers are probably working together to share the type of information they require to help each other out in these type of cases in order to prevent these cases becoming widespread. So having waited almost three full years for the second judgment under this legislation, now in the space of four weeks we have three new decisions. But the real question of course is what does this mean for you as representatives of employers in Ireland? And I think there are a number of points we can take from this. Some negative, some positive, but mostly helpful in understanding how this legislation works. Firstly, as regards the threshold required under the legislation as to what is a not insignificant number, I think we can now take it that the number is still somewhere north of 20%, 
and possibly as high as just under a third of the group concerned, as we saw in the conduit case. We also now know that employers can play with the numbers and be strategic about this if the facts support it. In the Zimmer case, clearly the facts did support it, and I think employers should be looking out for those opportunities. Secondly, while we had Section 5 to read from the outset of this legislation, we now have a much better understanding of the emphasis the court places on the three key questions. A, are the employees comparators? B, are they in similar employment? And C, do they receive a lesser benefit? Thirdly, on the point around comparability, it's useful to understand that the Labour Court does not require the employees to be identical, simply that they be capable of comparison. We also know when it comes to defending this point around comparisons that it's actually a waste of time to produce information in regard to other more accurate comparators because the court is only interested in the comparison between the employees before it and the employees with whom they claim to be comparators. In a practical sense, when it comes to preparing these type of cases, that type of information is very useful because it saves time preparing arguments that the Labour Court simply isn't interested in. Fourthly, it's interesting to see the way the Labour Court blurred the lines between public and private sector employment. Now, it may be because of the particular facts of the conduit case that the employees were so comparable and almost identical in how they operated. But it's nonetheless important to see that the court is prepared to draw that comparison across the two sectors. One of the main points we can take from the Enercon case is the high threshold that the Labour Court imposes when it comes to the type of information it requires in order to be able to carry out the assessment. As I said before, this is something that unions may struggle with if they simply don't have access to that information or even where they provide it if they can't stand over it before the court. This is ultimately what Ryanair succeeded on back in 2007, so I don't think this point is closed by any means. Finally, one of the most positive points that we can take for employers coming out of the conduit case is that even where the employer ultimately loses and an order is given, the order cannot be backdated and cannot be made retrospective. That represents real cost and value to employers, depending on how that pans out. And given that these cases are, from the various ones we've seen today, taking up to 20 months to come to full conclusion, that is a very significant point. To keep things relevant as we come to the end of the World Cup, at this point, with these three judgments, it's now too all for both the employers and the employees, in that they have both won two cases before the Labour Court. I think as a result, it means that the union side are not going to be rushing out to bring more and more of these claims. They won't see it as an easy win for their members. More generally, my view on this legislation, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced of this month on month, is that the union side have actually given up on it already. In the last 12 months, we saw the unions looking again for mandatory recognition legislation around this, which must mean that they accept themselves that this legislation isn't working. Overall, these three judgments are definitely welcome because they give us much greater guidance on how the Labour Court will take these claims. So I do think it's not going to result in any huge increase in the number of claims under this Act. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.